0: Through the store, and there's this massive display of wine glasses, right? So there's like, y'all be seeing like a three-tiered cake. Evidently, there's three tiers of wine glasses. So like wine glasses, and then a mirror, and then wine glasses, and then a mirror, and then wine glasses. And it was this beautiful facade of glasses. Now I don't remember any of this, but who wouldn't want to touch that, right? Who wouldn't want to look at that and go, man, I wonder what happens if you move that one. So. Two-year-old me, I moved that one. All of them just collapsed, shattered all across the floor. Now again, parents didn't have much money. I just broke probably a hundred, hundred fifty dollars, which back in that day was like millions of dollars. And my mom was furious. I can't tell you what my mom said, but most of you know my mom, so just go ask her what remarks came out of her mouth. She was pleading with the store attendant, "Don't like, I'll, I'll cover this. I'll find a way to cover this, please." And they are like, "No." We, bro, we got insurance. We don't care. Like y'all just going out of here. Um, and so she tells me that story all the time, because here's why. I have a kid, uh, one of my four that just loves to break things and, and is never on purpose. And it's always an accident and they never mean to. So in our house, we have this rule called hands in pockets. Anyone else? So our kids know that when we go in, like the Dahlonega um, on the square, what's that called? The general store. That is a hands in pocket store for sure because they're trying to pack everything in as much as possible. So we walk in, kids' hands in pockets. If you pull your hands out of your pockets, the day will be the last day you breathe, all right? And we walk in the store and that's how we run because when things get broken and they shatter, those wine glasses were everywhere. It's irreplaceable. You cannot go back and fix that. And what we're going to see in Genesis 3, which is a primer into the book of Exodus, is when sin hit, it wasn't just fractured. Sin destroyed everything. Then, now, and forever, sin is not fractured, but it is shattered. Life as we know it, and if we don't truly understand the ramifications of that, then we miss what Christ has done. We miss what happened in the Exodus, and we miss what's going to happen in eternity. So, so with that in mind, let's look at Genesis three together. Now, last week, just as we're flipping there, last week, uh, Dylan did a great job talking about Genesis 1, and everything was good and very good. And if this is your first time, we're doing an eight-week primer within the book of Genesis to get to the book of Exodus. So nothing we're covering is going to be exhaustive in the sense that we're going to cover everything in the book of Genesis. But what do we need to know about the Genesis story to land us in the book of Exodus. And so last week, Dylan talked about good, very good. He threw in some beavers in there. But but basically, everything was perfect. In Genesis 2, 15 through 17, this is what God says. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of the tree of the garden, Of every tree of the garden, excuse me, but of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you will surely die. So we left off last week, everything's good, everything's very good. Um, You're going to have a bunch of babies, you're going to work, but it's going to be great because you're with me forever. This is utopia, this is paradise, this is a perfected state, God and humans together But if you have any background in church, you you know exactly where we're going, what happens in Genesis 3. So, uh, for the sake of time, typically we would read the entire section together. But I'm going to read a little bit, talk a little bit, so that we can move on a little bit faster this morning. So, um, Genesis 3, let's pick it up in verse 1. Genesis 3, we're going to pick it up in verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So there's three things I want us to see that's going to kind of primer into the shattering of humanity as we know it. It's the serpent, right? It's the sin and then the suffering that comes after. Did y'all catch that? Kids, did y'all catch that? There's three S's. I'm in my pastor groove this morning, right? The three S's that I want us to see is the serpent, the sin, and the suffering. And so Adam and Eve living in this utopian world with the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, God Almighty, face to face with them. I just don't think we can fully comprehend. Um, last week, Jared taught the fame reunion, which did a great job, and he picked up his Bible, and I've never seen this done before, and took out two pages from the beginning, two pages from the end, and said, this right here, what we have is where sin is in the Bible. So there are a few pages before, a few pages after, but everything else in the middle is just entrenched in sin, it's sinful nature, sinful desires, and God redeeming us from that sin. But when we stop to really think about that, we, we can scarcely take in the beauty that took place in the Garden of Eden, just the nature of all that was right. But enter Satan. Enter Satan, enter the serpent. So, so real quickly, not exhaustively, we see in Revelation 12 and Jude 6 two important passages that indicate Satan was an angel who was responsible for leading a group of fellow angels and rejecting God's authority. So as a result, God's not going to handle that. He throws him out from heaven to earth where he's given war against the seed of woman and God's people. So we see this all the way back in Genesis 3. This fallen angel that was thrown down from heaven is waging war on God, and he's going through uh, Adam and Eve to do that. So a couple quick facts about Satan from the Bible. Satan is a personal being with a mind, emotions, and a will. He's a created being and he is not equal to God, right? So, so there's this dichotomy of like good versus evil, God versus Satan. No, no, Satan was created by God. He's never going to be on his level. Uh, he can only do what God allows. And we see this narrative go through in the book of Job. This Satan is not omnipresent, but he does oversee a horde of demons that we see in Ephesians would be the powers of this dark world, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So although he's not omnipresent because he's not God, he has a horde of demons that do his work. And this is probably the most important part that we see there, and we also see in our lives that Satan actively works to nullify the effects of the Word and God, Word of God in people's hearts. So he's actively working to, to discredit, to nullify the Word of God in people's hearts. He blinds the intellect of those who do not believe so they cannot understand the gospel. And we see this. I mean, this is the first trick. Did God actually say? Did he actually say this? And, and that's pretty crafty because we can all justify and rationalize. We read clearly in the scriptures, but then we justify, well, well, if God knew my situation, then he would understand that I can't do that. I can't follow through with that. Well, if God knows how much I make, he would understand, oh, yeah, bro, you get a pass. You don't have to tithe. Everyone else has to give 10% back to the Lord, but, but you, you're different. Right, so we all start to believe this, did God really actually say, and this all the way comes back to Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve in the garden. So, so I just want to read one passage and then we'll move on to the next. But 1 Peter 5.8 says this, be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So we see the craftiness of Satan through the serpent in Genesis 3, and we have to understand he's just as crafty, and he's just as alluring, and he's just as deceiving to us today as he was then. We have to be sober-minded because he's prowling around looking to destroy us. And that's exactly what he does. Let's look at verse 6. Genesis three six. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of day. And the man and wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now that right there I mean, should just break us. Should just break us. So when sin entered into the world, they hid from the perfect God. It's one of the things that we tell our kids, and my parents have always told us just, just don't lie to us. If you tell us the truth straight up, the consequences will be there, but they will be not as severe as if you lie to us. Because it's in all of our nature to deceive and then to hide, to deceive and then to run. And we see this clearly, and the Lord is walking in the garden and they're hiding from him because of sin. Now, again, everything has shifted. We've, we've had two chapters of bliss, two chapters of this utopian perfection, and then now the sin has come in, and it's fractured. So, so kids, can you help me with something real quick? Kids, raise your hand. I, I will give a lot of money if you can answer this question. All right, kids, are you paying attention? Because you've learned this before. Miss Jordan sent this from Kids Ministry, the big quick story. Big picture question, an answer from the time we learned about the fall and Sunday school was this. What does it mean to sin? Any kid know the answer? George's going to get a raise depending on this. You know zero times 100, still zero. Do y'all know that sidebar that like almost everything here is volunteer ran? So y'all should love on our volunteers. Any, any kid help me out? Man, y'all are just like your, your parents. Oh, we got one? Who we got? Brayden, what do you got, man? Your dad's an elder, is that right? Is he, is he good? Brayden, your parents are gonna go get you the biggest ice cream today for answering that question. Is that not awesome or what? And maybe a new Braves jersey? Yeah? Yeah, I like it. Good job, Stephen. Good job, Megan. So yeah, so the answer that Braden was saying is to sin is to think, speak, or behave in any way that goes against God and his commands. Now, aren't you grateful that our kids are learning that while we're in here together? That's such a pivotal thing for our children to understand that sin is to think, speak, or behave in any way that goes against God and his commands. And so what we see here is Adam and Eve take the fruit Eat it. They've gone against the commands and will of God. And a holy God cannot leave this unpunished. The ESV Study Bible puts it this way The disastrous consequence of Adam's sin cannot be overemphasized, resulting in the fall of mankind, the beginning of every kind of sin, suffering, and pain, as well as physical and spiritual death for the human race. This is what's just happened. This is what has just happened, sent and entered into the world, and now it's in every part of every being. Now, if we look at the suffering and the consequence, this is really interesting. Look with me at verse 8. God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said, where are you? Where are you? Now, obviously, God knows exactly where Adam and Eve are. But what this is showing is that things have fractured. Things will never be the same. Verse 10. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid from, I hid myself. God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I've commanded you not to eat? Again, God knows. The man said, the woman who you gave to me, Gave to be with me. She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, "What is it that you have done?" The woman said, "The serpent deceived me, and I ate." Now I, I want to look at the consequences really briefly, but I want to spend the rest of our time, the next eight to ten minutes, looking at the ramifications of what sin does. So there are real crystal clear consequences that we see. God declares a death sentence on them both, uh, and a spiritual death, a physical death. They were cut off from the tree of life. They were kicked out of the garden. They were also grave consequences for marriage. Man's work would be toilsome and frustrating, and now they're slave to sin. So. So we see right after this that there's real consequences to sin entering into the world. But I want to zoom out in our time together and look at the ramifications. What does this mean for us today? How fractured did this actually happen? Because here's what I hear more often than not. And and listen, I'll be honest, between the church and the world, that I hear this language all over the place. Here's the pervasive myth. That I'm not dead with sin, I'm just sick with sin. I'm not dead with sin, I'm just sick with sin. That I'm not shattered in my sin, I'm just a little cracked. That we don't think we need to be saved, we just need to be helped from this one little situation. We don't think we need good news, we just need good advice. We don't think we need the gospel, we just need a few pointers to have a better life. So on one on one side we see if we're actually shattered, Everything has changed and we need a solution that none of us can have. It's my mom overlooking the wine glasses inside of Sears and going, there's no way I can fix this. It's me overlooking every piece of glass and shatteredness inside Bucky's, which was my first time with my kids. It was supposed to be Utopia and they broke stuff. Kids, you remember that? Yeah, I do too. And going, I can't fix this. And it's the attendants coming over and go, here's here's all my money. Sorry. Actually it was me running and letting Bree have it. Like a little garden right here. Eve took care of it and Adam ran. That's what I did. I said, Bree you got this. You were prettier than I am. I'm out. So I I walked away. But on the other side we have justification. We have well I'm not really a sinful person. I mean, I just messed up. It's not that big of a deal. I I can show you a sinful person. Let me tell you about my friend Brad. Brad is an actual sinful. Me, I just messed up once or twice. The guys that are in prison, the ones that actually like murder people, they're sinful people. I'm a good person. Sometimes I just make bad mistakes. But the original sin of Adam means that we are dead, not sick. And it is fundamental, fundamental for us to understand this as believers. So in our, good gracious, five minutes, I'm gonna fly through this as much as possible. And let me be honest, Google this. I will will love to help you work through this in another context, um, because this is the doctrine of original sin. Now, in my seminary classes, this took us about three or four hour-long lectures to go through original sin, and I'm gonna do it in about five to six minutes, all right? So this is not gonna be exhaustive, but we have to understand what took place when Adam sinned, that we died, that everything shattered, it wasn't fractured, it wasn't cracked, everything changed. It teaches that all people are corrupted by Adam's sin through natural generation. That means that we are now sinful, we are born sinful because of Adam's sin and we enter the world guilty, that we enter the world sinful. And we could see this, I mean, it's just natural when we look at our, I mean, again, not picking on kids, but when we look at some of our kids' decisions and go, who, who taught you that? How did you learn that? Well, they didn't. It was born within them. I actually heard a pastor this week, Vodi bacham say that they are vipers and diapers. I thought that was pretty true. If you don't have kids yet, just wait. It's coming. It's coming. And we see this. God tells them in Genesis 2, if you eat of the tree, you shall surely die. Now, some people that will push back original from original sin go, no, 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 but they didn't die. So therefore, God was just joking, there's not sin nature within us or else they would have died. Well, but they did. Because you have to death at this point was not even a thing. There was no framework for death. So in that moment, spiritually, they died because they ran, they hid. And physically, they started dying instantly right away. So, death entered into the world through one man's sin. Original sin shows that we sin because we are sinners sinners, entering this world with a corrupt nature and without hope apart from the saving grace of God and the gospel, that our lives are shattered because of sin and there's nothing that can put us back together. That is what this doctrine of original sin means because of what took place in Genesis 3. Now, the Westminster Confession of Faith puts it this way, and I think this will be on the screen just for us to see and understand. Our first parents being seduced by the subtlety and temptation of Satan, sinned in eating the forbidden fruit. This their sin, God was pleased according to his wise and holy counsel to permit, having purposed it in order for his own glory. By the sin, they fell from their original righteousness and communion with God and so became dead in sin. And wholly defiled in all faculties and parts of their soul and body. Did y'all catch that? Every part, because of the sins of Adam, now we are born. Sin is in every part of our faculties and souls and body. Number three, they, they being the root of mankind, the guilt of the sin was imputed. And at the same time, death and sin corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them the original generation. From this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to, inclined to all evil, do precede all actual transgressions. Did y'all catch that? Let me read that one more. From this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good. And wholly inclined to all evil. So, because of the sins of Adam, this is what we are born into. That sin runs so deep in us that we can't trust ourselves. That we can't trust ourselves. So, what does this mean then? That men and women are so corrupted morally and spiritually by our natural union with Adam that we are totally depraved. So, if you have your Bible, flip over me to Romans three, because Paul elaborates on this: our, our true nature, our true position. And as I'm preaching through this, as we're studying Scripture, if you're feeling a little bit of pushback, just remember what the Satan, or the serpent said in the garden. Well, did God really say? Because that's what's taking place. Romans 3, we're going to read 9 through 18. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged it all. Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one okay now now i could understand we go yeah but like like paul was just exaggerating here no no one not even one none whatsoever no not at all this wasn't just a subtle part of a sentence that we could justify away this is the main thrust and what he's doing here is going back and quoting the old testament that because of the sins of Adam, we we're all born sinful nature. We all run from God. We all desire things opposing God. That the sin within us is what controls us. Now, we see, and we don't have to spend a lot of time, that the, that the wages of sin is death, right? And, and there's death all around us. We've all had loved ones, we've all had friends, we've all had family pass away. So, so yes, there was physical death, but what does spiritual death actually look like within us? This complete inability to pursue God, to run after God. And we can see this, I mean, we see John, John chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And this is such a picture perfect for us, because what can a dead man do? Nothing. A dead man can be dead, that's what dead men do. And so for Jesus to walk in and say, Lazarus, get up, is the perfect imagery for us. If we we're walking in our sin, if we we're dead in our sins and trespasses, we can't fix ourselves. We can't heal ourselves. It's only through the powerful work of Christ that we can even be saved, that our hearts can be changed. We can get a heart from, or from the Holy Spirit. We can get rid of the heart of stone. And so this is what makes me really nervous when I hear those, especially those that God has not saved stuff, say stuff like this. Well, just trust your heart. Just listen to your heart. You know the truth that's in you. Just, just do that truth. Trust your own heart. And I'm thinking Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So if you have to excuse me if I think that's really bad advice for you to listen to your heart. Because my heart just told me to murder the guy that cut me off in traffic this morning. So that's the heart that you want me to listen to? My heart told me to work later because if I go home, I'm going to have to help out around the house with the kids and the dishes. So I'm going to work a couple hours later because that's more convenient for me. That's what my heart told me. My heart told me to not look at that guy that needed $20 because, I mean, I'd much rather have Burger King than help that guy out. So that's the heart that you want me to listen to? I mean, we could just tease this out over and over and over again, so you'll have to forgive me if I think that's horrible advice because I know what my heart tells me and it never ends well. It never ends well. Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. But this is the common myth that has taken hold in our culture and society that society makes me evil. It's not what happens within me, it's what happens around me. That I was born a good person, but because of my parents, I'm this way. Because of my friend group, I'm this way. Because of what society has said, I'm this way. That's what we have born to be understood. Ephesians two would put it this way: that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. That that's where we were, where we once walked, following the prince of the power in the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's what we were born into. And this debate, I'll skip over this for the sake of time, but, but you can go all the way back into church history and look at this guy named Pelagius, who lived in the late 300s, early 400s, that was arguing this, that because of Adam's sin, we weren't actually, it didn't go down to our core, that there's some people, you, you can defeat sin, you can conquer sin, it doesn't affect everything about you. Yeah, you might have some sin around you, but you can defeat it, you can beat it and how pelagius was actually excommunicated from the church because he was labeled a heretic is everyone kept coming back to romans 5:12 romans 5:12 therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin so death spread into all men because all have sinned paul's point was not that all men have sinned after the example of adam and therefore the curse of death but rather all men share in the consequences of adam's sin All have sinned because sin is in us. That's who we are, therefore that's what we do. So when we go to Genesis 3, when we understand the original sin, we have to understand that everything has been shattered. It is beyond repair. So it begs the question, if I'm dead in my sin, if I don't have the ability to fix myself, to love God, to serve God, to save myself because of my sinful nature, what then do I do? What am I supposed to do now? That's a great question. Go with me to Exodus 6. And this is it. We're starting to land the plane. Exodus 6 is probably one of the main focal texts that you'll hear us come back to over and over and over and over again. Because this just continues the story, continues the narrative that we see Moses trying to help us understand as he recounts what has taken place because if the sin, if original sin has shattered and fractured everything, has broken every part of our being, it begs the question, who can fix this? Who, who can make us whole again? What are we supposed to do? And we see God clearly and definely answer this in Exodus 6. We're going to pick it up in verse 6. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So who is going to repair the sinful nature that shattered everything? God. I will. I will do this. I will provide for you. I will take care of this. I will fix this because I'm the only one that can. So the whole push, the whole thing we're going to see from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation, and we're going to zoom in within the book of Exodus is that we cannot fix this. That your life is not broken that you can repair. It's not through white-knuckle effort that you can save yourself. The whole thrust of the book of Exodus is that God will. God will save you. God will redeem you. God will rescue you. But the more we belittle that and the more we take away that, man, I'm not that much of a sinner. I can fix myself. We're belittling and demeaning what God has done for us. He will. He will. This is why Paul says crazy things like, I'm going to boast all the more in my weakness. Because it shows how great and glorious God is. He will do it. Most of us walk through life thinking, God, thank thank you for saving me from my sin. But you didn't have to do that. Like, if you would have given me a little bit more time, I could have fixed that. I I could have done that. I I don't need you to help me. I don't need you to rescue me. I, I can take care of myself. And the doctrine of original sin shows us that we cannot. And if we see that, then the goodness and the love of our God is just limitless. Because why would he do that? Now, with that in view, let's go back to Genesis 3. Back in Genesis 3, verse 21, As Adam and Eve are hiding in their sin, as Adam and Eve have withdrawn because they know that things have changed and they're hiding from God because they didn't listen. Genesis 3.21 just puts a real small snippet in that most of us probably have just glanced over our entire life, to be honest. In Genesis 3.21, we, say, we see this. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife Garments of skin and clothe them. So not only who's going to clothe Adam and Eve, God will. But in this picture, we see the first sacrifice for sin. Who's going to cover their sin? God's saying, I will. I will sacrifice this animal, and I will spill out this blood for your sin that you don't even comprehend yet. And oh, by the way, here's some clothes. I Will and then that brings us up to for the gospel. How are we going to save ourselves? We can't, and this is what's clearly taught in Romans five: while we were weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. How are we going to save ourselves? God says, I, I will, and here's how I will, I will send my only son. To be atonement for you. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person, one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. I will. Since therefore, now we've been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. And then, probably one of my favorite passages, Ephesians 2. We're going to pick it up in verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us. Verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Not damaged. Not scarred. Dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. He will do it. And that's what we get to boast in all the more. We don't need good advice. We don't need good counsel. We need the gospel. We need the blood spilt by Christ to rescue us and redeem us and to make us alive together with him because we are spiritually dead. So as we transition into a time of communion this morning, I I just want to ask, maybe you're in here for one of the first times and you haven't heard this gospel preached before, that you are dead to sin. And you have been trying to be a good person. It might be while you're here, you bought a Bible and you, you've tried to do all the right things that you know you're supposed to do, but now you're coming to the conviction that that's just putting lipstick on a pig. That's trying to duct tape these wine glasses back together. That's not going to work. Only God can save you. You cannot save yourself. So for this morning, you heard the love and the, the adoration that we have for God because he will, he will do this. Maybe some of us in this room just need to be convicted of some sin that we've just been justifying for far too long. Well, if God knew my situation, he would understand. If, if God knew how difficult this was for me, then he would probably give me a pass. And Friends, that's not how sin works. But for the rest of us, man, let us rejoice. I mean, this, this is why we sing. This is why we worship. Because God didn't have to, but he willingly and joyfully said, I will take care of it. I will do it all you are shattered in sin and i will bring you alive together in christ i will do it for you so let's sing so as we tenor into a time of communion i'm going to read like we do almost every week first corinthians 11 i think it'll be on the screen for us and then let's wrestle for some of us we need to confess our sin for some of us we just need to rejoice because god does first corinthians 11 we're going to pick it up in verse 23 For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats this bread and drinks the cup in, of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. So let each person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. For instance, just simply saying, if you're not yet a believer, just skip out on this part. That this is for us as believers to remember all that Christ did for us. And this is Christ dying in our place because we can't. This is Christ dying for the sin that we see all the way back from our forefather Adam that we cannot fix. That our lives are shattered, but when Christ died for us, we've been made whole. So, I'm going to pray. We're going to take communion elders will be in the back if you want to talk some of this through. And then we're going to sing and rejoice because God saved us. God rescued us through Christ. He paid the price, price when we could not fix ourselves. So let's pray. And Father, we're so grateful just to hear this message. That even though the sins of Adam has corrupted everything and everyone, And every sin that's going on in our lives and in our hearts and in this world, we can trace back to that one moment where everything was shattered. And you would have been fully right and just to say, forget it, I'm over it. But that's not what you did. That We see you come after them. We see you search after them. And not only search after them, but we see you make a sacrifice for them. All is a foreshadowing of what's coming for us. That even though we are dead to sin, even though our hearts are wicked above all else, that even the good things that we do are actually just selfish things that are trying to make ourselves look better, you still pursued after us by sending Christ to rescue us and redeem us. So when we sit back and think of the question that if sin has truly shattered my life, who can fix this? Let us rejoice and worship as we hear God saying, I will. I will fix this. I will make you new. And so as we take communion together, church, let us remember God loves. He doesn't oversee sin. He doesn't just forget about it. He forgives it through the blood and the body that was broken for us. This is why we sing. This is why we worship. This is why we rejoice. God has made us new. He has saved us, rescued us, and redeemed us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So if this is your first time, we've got communion set up in the back. You can spend a few moments in prayer, or if you're ready to go, it'll be back there, and we'll just continue in worship.